0: Well, turn again this morning, if you would, to the book of Hebrews, chapter 2. Hebrews, chapter 2. And this morning, I'd like to draw your attention especially to the the 17th verse. uh, Hebrews, chapter 2, and verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And let us pray. Father, again, we're so thankful we can enlist thy aid and come to thee in prayer. We thank you that you do hear Our requests and our our prayers and I I thank you for uh, the time already just the time of of worship the preciousness of the the fellowship of the saints that we can gather together and worship such a pure glorious holy God and I thank you for that and this again I would pray for the help of your Holy Spirit these moments to bring forth Holy Scripture in, in a way that not only honors thyself, but in a way that ministers to our own soul, to our own heart, that would serve the ends of our own um, increased devotion to thee, increased love for thee, our own walk with you. So just continue to bless our time together these moments, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, according to the uh, Wycliffe Bible Encyclopedia, uh, a priest is an authorized minister in sacred things, especially one who offers sacrifices at the altar and acts as mediator between God and men. So the priesthood, which was so central to the religion and worship of the Old Testament, helps us to understand the, the priestly work of Christ on behalf of his people. This article goes on, "...the cardinal components of the gospel which fulfilled the Old Testament forms..." by christ's redemptive acts are typically represented in the hebrew priesthood this priesthood therefore which was of supreme importance in old testament times as the the means of securing and retaining acceptable standing and fellowship with god becomes in the new testament the ground for understanding the mediatorial and redemptive ministry of jesus christ so for example, when you think of a, of a prophet, which would be a, a sacred office, the emphasis it's on God's word through a man to the people. So the direction is from God to the people through a man. However, when we think of a priest, which is also a, a sacred office determined by God, the emphasis it's, it's not from God to the people, but from the people to God. It's the work of mediation. How can they be accepted by God? So the direction is, is God's word. Um, With regard to the high priest, this article goes on. In Israel, as in many other states, with historical priestly religions, a hierarchical system of graduated powers and responsibilities existed with a chief or high priest at the head of the organization. For over a millennium before Moses, each of the larger temples and religious centers of Egypt had its high priest. Further, it says, in the epistle to the Hebrews, Jesus is shown to be the fulfillment of the priestly office and all the priestly activities of the old testament jesus the son of god is declared to be the true high priest having accomplished in the perfection of his person and redemptive acts all that the old testament priesthood centered in the high priestly person and office could not do because of its nature and spiritual limitations the term high priest In some relation to Christ, is used 17 times in the epistle, the writer of the epistle shows that the Aaronic priesthood and animal sacrifices are no longer needed because Jesus has completed the work of salvation as the high priest consecrated forevermore. So ends the reading from the Wycliffe Bible Encyclopedia. This term translated, high priest, in our text, it actually occurs over 120 times in the New Testament. It's especially predominant in the Gospels. However, it's only ascribed directly, directly to the person of Christ in the book of Hebrews um, In verse 17 constitutes the the first of many instances in the book of Hebrews where Christ is specifically referred to as a high priest. Although his priestly functions are referred to sometimes when the term high priest is not used. Back in chapter 1 and verse 3, it talks about he made purification of sins. That's a priestly activity, even though the term high priest is not used there. Excuse me. So it's not only that this is the first reference to our Lord as a high priest, it informs our minds about our Lord's activity in this particular capacity. Paul Ellingworth, a helpful commentator, wrote that this verse, it's a nerve center of the epistle, summing up in its first clause. The first clause would be, therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. Uh, The discussion since verse 10, announcing in the following subordinate clauses the two major doctrinal concerns, namely the high priestly status of Christ and secondly his work in dealing with sin. So this, this morning our intention is to look at specifically at three facets of our Lord's high priestly ministry in behalf of sinners. Three facets of his ministry in behalf of sinners. Number one, Excuse me. Uh, his becoming a high priest necessitated a full identification with the people of God he came to save. So point one, it necessitated a full identification with the people of God that he came to save. It was absolutely necessary. He became like them. It was incumbent upon him to fully participate in the human condition. <clears throat> Notice the text says he had to be made like his brethren. Here's the, here's kind of a key phrase in all things that has reference to his incarnation. His becoming fully human, it's very much like the import of verse 14. Since then the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. I'd offer four further factors here that inform our thinking about this full identification uh, with his people by way of his incarnation. Four factors. Number one, it's relational. And what what I mean by that, it's it's, a precious, there's a precious dimension to this. To, to be made like his brethren in all things. So it's not just solidarity with his people, but it's a, it's a beloved kind of bond. picks up what we see in verses 11 and 12. I'll proclaim thy name to my brethren, and for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. So it shows that the solidarity identification it's, it's relational it brings to mind a, the, the level of his condescension he's not ashamed a to call them brethren secondly it's presented as being absolutely necessary now verse 14 gives us a clear statement of the fact of our lord's incarnation since then the children share in flesh and blood he himself likewise also partook of the same So it clearly states the fact of his full participation in the human condition. But verse 17 makes the point, not only did it happen, it had to happen. He had to be made like his brethren in all things. The term had to means to be obligated. One must do something. One ought to do something. It's something that a person is bound to do. The word is translated obligated in chapter 5 and verse 3. Now, the necessity of his becoming fully human, the reason that had to be the case, is to represent the people before God. He had to be completely like them, to become completely like them, to rightly represent them before God. When we get to chapter 5 and verse 1, it says, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men and things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. So, so his identification, he had to be made like them to rightly represent them before God. So this identification that's relational, it's necessary. And then thirdly, I'd have you notice it's a thoroughgoing or it's, it's a comprehensive kind of identification. As we noted, um, the force of, of verse 14 says, in all things. But the phrase here receives the, the phrase receives the emphasis in this verse indicating the identification with his people. It's comprehensive and, and thoroughgoing. Uh, William Lane wrote in the statement that obligation was laid upon the incarnate son to become altogether like his brethren however the accent falls upon the qualifying phrase in all things that's not a verse 14 that's in our text in all things in every respect which had been placed in the emphatic position in the clause. it extends to every quality that demonstrated that Jesus shared a full and true human existence and Peter O'Brien puts it like this, the inference drawn from Christ's solidarity with his brothers and sisters is that it was incumbent on him to be fully like them. We should understand the expression to mean be completely like. In the earlier reference, the focus was upon Jesus' adoption of human nature. Here the stress is on his sharing in all the experiences of life. One wrote, the son did not assume an artificial or idealized humanity, but one characterized by the brokenness of the actual humanity, which his people share. William Hughes, I think, kind of summarizes it well. He wrote, it follows, therefore, that he had of necessity to be made like his brethren in all things. That is... To identify himself completely with mankind, which he came to rescue by a true incarnation involving the assumption not only of flesh and blood, but also of all human feelings, sensibilities. In every respect emphasized the completeness of this assimilation, removing all doubt regarding the sense of made like, which might otherwise suggest a likeness that is only external or apparent. So these words help us to see the complete, thoroughgoing character of his identification with the people he came to save, which which was needed to completely completely fulfill his high priestly role of representing them before the being of God. So this identification is relational, it is necessary, it's comprehensive, but then fourthly, it's limited. It's limited. Now when I say limited, I mean that um, his affinity with mankind and their struggles and their weaknesses did not include sin. He did not sin. He did not become a sinner. You're saying, Doug, I don't think the text says that. Well, it doesn't say that. I'm just making that point. Because to to guard, a little bit further in the book of Hebrews, to guard against that potential misunderstanding, when you get to chapter 4 and verse 15, it says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things, as we are yet without sin. And then in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 26, it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. So in the first place, this ministry of of high priests, excuse me, there's a necessary full identification with the people that he came to save, a full participation in the human condition, including their their sympathies and, and their emotions and the things that they go through. And then in the second place, um, this full identification with his people qualified him to fulfill his high priestly ministry. The full identification with the people qualified him to fulfill this high priestly ministry in two ways, merciful and faithful. It it caused him to become a merciful and faithful high priest. So the reason for his full identification and incarnation was to qualify him in these two different respects. As one put it, the following purpose clause, that he might become merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God explains the appropriateness of this action. Since a priest, by definition, had to be part of the group he represented, it was necessary for the son to assume the humanity of God's people in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest and do what high priests do, excuse me, and do what priests do, represent them in things pertaining to God by removing their sin. So I just want to consider these two qualifications in order. In the first place, it says he's a a merciful high priest it's the idea of showing leniency or compassion or forgiveness uh, mercy presupposes misery at least to some degree or at some level um we see this in our lord's ministry in matthew nine twenty-seven, as jesus passed on from there two blind men followed him crying out saying have mercy on us son of david in matthew 15 22 behold a uh, Canaanite woman came out from that region and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. And when Jesus was uh, teaching the well-known account of the Good Samaritan, he came upon a man who had fell among robbers. They they stripped him and beat him and went away leaving him half dead. That's misery. Um, and, And he saw him. The Good Samaritan saw him, felt compassion, came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. He put him on his own beast, brought him to an end, took care of him. And Jesus puts that kind of activity in the category of mercy, presupposes this condition of misery and the activity to relieve him. So God the Father and God the Son, I, I should say, God the Father and God the Son, it's important to realize they are, they have always been merciful. Uh, Exodus 34 6 says, And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long suffering, abundant in goodness and the truth. However, Um, our Lord's full adoption of the human condition made him, as O'Brien puts it, uh, merciful to the needs of the people. Uh, And elsewhere, he writes, it is his experience of suffering and temptation that makes him perfectly sympathetic. That is, merciful to the needs of his people. He's merciful because through his own sufferings and trials, he can sympathize with theirs. So it relates to his taking on the human condition. Um, And then he was faithful as a high Priest, or a faithful high priest. Three thoughts I would suggest in this connection. What does it mean that he was a faithful high priest? Well, number one, uh, he was completely obedient to the will of God the Father. Completely obedient to the dictates of God the Father. The text, it's a likely allusion to 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 35. And if you read that section, you come across a priest by the name of, of Eli. He had two sons that were also priests. One was named Hophni, one was named Phineas. And they're described as worthless men, had no regard for the Lord. In contrast to that, 1 Samuel 2.35, words which these are words which apply to our Lord's high priestly ministry. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and my soul. And I'll build him an enduring house and he will walk before me excuse me, and he will walk before my anointed always. So he's a high priest who will, will do everything that is in the Father's heart. He will completely obey the Father. Secondly, being a a faithful high priest means that he fulfilled his duties in the midst of difficulty and opposition. Being a faithful high priest means... He fulfilled his duties in the midst of of great affliction, great difficulty, and great opposition. He remained steadfast um, to opposition against suffering. He never threw in the towel, so to speak. Notice verse 18. For since he himself was tempted in that he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. And this is a a truth that we are to muse on and consider at least to some level. Because notice chapter 3 and verse 1. Therefore... Holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses also to his house. And then thirdly, for him to be a faithful high priest, it means that He's trustworthy. It means we can rely on him. We can depend upon him. And I think there's a connection between the two because he has faithfully discharged his duties as a high priest. Therefore, we have the confidence that we can rely on him and, and we can um, trust him and Hebrews 12, 3 kind of puts these together. Just says, Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. We can trust him. We can rely upon him. He was faithful to fulfill his high priestly duties. He maintained a complete devotion to the work God called him to do, so he can be trusted. He can be relied upon. Well, then thirdly, under this heading, I would have you notice the, the sphere or the domain within which these priestly ministries are carried out. It says, in things pertaining to God, at least that's the New American Standard translation. This was a, a standard phrase in um, the first five books of the Old Testament, translated in Greek, with regard to God. So, in things pertaining to God, or with regard to the being of God. O'Brien writes here, it is, It's tied with with Christ's high priesthood being exercised in areas where men and women are accountable to God. So it's pertaining to God, but especially has respect to areas in which we are accountable to God or responsible to God. F.F. Bruce says his high priesthood is exercised in matters for which they are responsible to God, on the Godward side. And most crucial among these is the matter of sin. How can sinners approach the holiness of God, either personally or through a representative? They can come to him with with confidence only if their sin has been dealt with. And this, above all else, makes Jesus so incomparable as a high priest and representative of his people. Not only is he sinless himself and therefore entitled to enter the presence of God on his own account, but... He has dealt effectively with the sins of his people and can therefore enter the presence of God on their account too. This leads us uh, to the third consideration this morning, third function, excuse me, thirdly, and that is the function of the high priest or the work of the high priest. We consider the identification with his people, then his qualification as high priest, then specifically his activity or his function as a high priest. He's qualified by means of his full identification, and therefore um, he is a, a merciful and faithful high priest. But then his particular function here is to make propitiation for the sins of his people. That's what he does. He does this for the people of God, he does this for his brethren, he does this for the many sons that are brought to glory. <clears throat> Excuse me, F.F. F. Bruce noted the purpose of his incarnation was that through death he might make propitiation for the sins of his people. Do in effective reality what the sacrificial ritual, excuse me, ritual of Old Testament, Old Testament times could do only in token form. A high priest who is actually and not merely in symbolism removed his people's sins and therewith the barrier which their sins erected between themselves and God is a high priest worth having. William Blaine writes this second purpose clause to make propitiation For the sins of a people is a a natural extension of the first. It describes the activity of the incarnate son in distinctly priestly categories. Now, a short definition of propitiate is to appease. So if I ask you, what does propitiation mean? Ah, to appease. That's the quick definition of propitiation. The longer definition is to appease an offended party's wrath for some wrongdoing in order to regain goodwill, normally accomplished by making sacrifice to an offended deity. And I would um, somewhat, not quite, but almost close by saying uh, there's a great need in our souls to fully embrace this aspect of our Lord's work on the cross, that is propitiation. I want to give you two or three reasons why it is so important. Number one, it puts the character of the true gospel into perspective. Without this doctrine, at least for my, it's hard to really understand the dynamics that are operating in the gospel. It clarifies what men and, and, and women are saved from, the wrath of God. I and mean, this is really what it's all about, so to speak. Uh, th- th- this is why there's such an urgency for men and women to repent and-, and come to God. It's because they are under the reality of the wrath of God. And when I, when I think about opportunities I have to share the gospel, it's-, it's hard for me not to bring in the wrath of God because that's it, right? I mean, that's what men and women are, are saved from. So it-, it helps us to understand the character of the gospel at a very basic level. And just to be clear, to undermining your thinking, the clarity of this in the Bible, a few texts, Proverbs eleven four says, "Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death." Zechariah one fifteen says, "I'm, I'm very angry with the nations who are at ease. For while I was only a little angry, they further the disaster." Romans two five, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. A part of Revelation chapter six. The kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? And with regard to every single unsaved person, John 3.36 says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. If they're unrepentant, that's the situation. That is their status. So this aspect of our our Lord's work immediately um, brings the... The character of the gospel into light it tells us what the gospel does on our behalf when a person comes to to christ and they rely on him as savior that they move immediately from being the object of his displeasure to being a child or a son that he will bring to glory well secondly this doctrine propitiation helps us to understand not only the nature of the gospel wrath is what we're saved from but also the nature of God's holiness. It helps us to understand his holiness because um, the, the, the wrath of God or the anger of God, it's not an erratic, disconnected, unjust emotion. It's simply a manifestation of the holiness of God as it relates to human sin. It's, it's the recoil of his holy character against the iniquity or the evil of man. In other words, if you you trace God's wrath back just one step, you arrive at the infinite holiness of the being of God. It's simply holiness on display. That's what it is. Now, you have probably found out there are those people who don't like the idea of God being angry, right? Or God being wrathful, or God being mad. It's fine if you talk about his love. It's okay if you talk about his grace, It's okay if you talk about his mercy, but I don't like the idea of a God who is angry with sinners. But I would suggest to you um, that really should make sense to us because we're all created in the image of God and we all know what it's like to be angry, right? Now, I know that can be selfish anger. I didn't get my way, so I'm mad. There is that. But we all understand righteous anger as well. We're created in the image of God. We're like God to some degree. And we're upset at times at injustices. That's part of the human condition. And that's because we're created in the image of God. Jesus entered the temple one day, and there were those called money changers. And they were selling doves. Do you remember how the merciful, kind, compassionate Jesus handled that situation? You know, it wasn't, uh, you want to take your birds and leave? That's not what he did. Here's what happened. Jesus entered the temple and cast out all those who were buying and selling in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a robber's den. The Greek word for the day is cast out. It's ekbalo. It's used of casting out demons. In other words, this was a violent response. It was a display of, of anger. It suggested that he was not just saying, there's the exit. It suggests he was helping people through the exit. That's righteous anger. That's the response of his soul to this miscarriage of what true worship should be like. In this case, it's the wrath of God. It's his holy being responding against the sin of man. Well, then, thirdly and lastly, the doctrine of propitiation helps us to truly understand the depth of God's love. I know this sounds a little ironic, doesn't it? It helps us to understand the holiness of God and the wrath of God. I'm arguing it also helps us to understand the character or the nature or the depth of the love of God. We read in 1 John 4, 9, By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So the the reason for God's wrath is our sin. But the need for God's love is our sin. And the essence of his love is presented here as sending his son to be uh, the appeasement, the satisfaction for our sins. This helps us to understand that the nature of love is marked by sacrifice. The the nature of true love is marked by self-sacrifice. The nature of true love, it's marked by self-sacrifice, which is costly. It's marked by a sacrifice that was the suffering and the dying and the piercing of the Son of God in our stead. One author wrote, love is self-sacrifice, the seeking of another's positive good at one's own cost. And a greater self-giving than God's gift of his Son, there has never been nor could be. Um, I think that's about it for today. Let us look to the Lord in prayer. Shall we? Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you for your Son. Uh, we thank you for his incarnation. We thank you; he became a human being. We thank you that he took our place on the cross. We thank you that he is our High Priest. We thank who he, he identifies with us. He, he knows us. He understands our struggles, our weaknesses, and we think we have such confident access to thee through him. And I pray that you would take what we have considered this morning and apply it to our own hearts and our own minds for your glory and the good of our souls. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.